The views expressed in this podcast are those of the scholars and do not represent the position of ACUS or the federal government of the United States. Welcome to the podcast of the Quality of Government Institute, where we have conversations with well-known experts to try to make sense of politics and governments all over the world. I am Victor Lapuente, professor in political science at the University of Gothenburg. And today in the podcast, we have political scientist Jennifer Selin, a well-known uh, scholar of public administration and market uh, regulations, uh, formerly professor at the University of uh, Missouri, uh, University of Illinois. She also has been at Vanderbilt uh, University. She was the co-director of the Washington, D.C. office uh, of uh, Levin Center, and now is at the Administrative Conference of the uh, United States. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And, and the first question is, what is the Administrative Conference of the United States? What is also the Levin Center? Because, I mean, we we lack these kind of institutions probably in, in other democracies outside the U.S. And I think uh, they could be very important for public debate on uh, issues related with public policy in general and public administration in particular. Um, so I'll start uh, chronologically with the Levin Center. Um, the Levin Center was established by one of our former United States senators, Carl Levin. Um, after he retired from the Senate, he wanted something to help improve governance. And so he set up an institute within a university uh, to promote the legislature's ability to um investigate and and learn the truth about the state of the world in in the hopes that that will help them both write better legislation and oversee the executive branch in a more uh, high quality manner and so what i did with the levin center was was work with with both state and federal legislators and helped con train them on how to interact with the executive branch of the, the US government. And then from there, I moved over to the executive branch actually. So I work in the Biden administration and I am an attorney there. And what my agency does, the Administrative Conference of the United States is that we are a legal agency that advises all of the other agencies in the federal government on how best to achieve their mission. So how do agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency or the Department of Agriculture uh, work within their statutory mandates to um, work within the law and still promote good public policy? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, you have in, in Washington uh, lots of adversary uh, institutions, uh, lots of think tanks that advise, give um, pieces of advice to legislators, to the executive, that provide lots of information to the media and to the academia on public policy. But the question is, how is it possible that given all this knowledge, the public debate in the U.S. has become so stupid. Let's say we uh, using some terminology of Joshua uh, Monk or, or Jonathan or Jonathan Hyde. So why we live in this moment in which public policy has been subject to the post-truth drama? No? Why we have more institutions providing more facts? on which sustain different opinions. Uh, and we do not argue about opinions, but we actually argue about the facts. So what has gone wrong in, in the US and public policy debate? 
Well, that's a very big question. Um, I, I would say that if you look at what's covered by the news, you it would say things are out of control and crazy, like, like you said. Um, but if you, some of some of my own more contemporary research uh, has shown one a piece I have that's forthcoming actually shows that there is a lot of um, nonpartisan working together on in Congress and in the executive branch um, that working together is actually more frequent than, than these like big policy clashes. But because the nature of the debate right now in in the in the public arena is is very contentious. That's what gets covered. Um, so I would push back a little bit against anyone's idea that like Washington is incredibly dysfunctional, because that is true in certain respects and not true in other respects. So one of the things that was very frustrating to me, say, working in on the Hill in Congress was that um, people when speaking, even at private events, like at uh, advocacy groups or working with nonprofits, or um, they, they, it seemed like they had a script and they couldn't get off of it. So it just kept saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. And then that perpetuates this problem of, of, of craziness. Like if you only have one one line and you keep saying it over and over again, you're not willing to listen to the other side, then that creates a problem. Um, but here, say in, in the Administrative Congress of the United States, uh, the entire agency on a daily basis is all about problem solving and working to improve the efficiency um, and accountability of government. Um, and even our most contentious debates over really big policy issues are both bipartisan and um, very respectful. And ultimately we come to a conclusion and, and there's a lot of compromise. Uh, and again, that sort of thing, compromise doesn't really get, get a lot of media coverage because it's not, it's not entertaining. Like, oh yeah, whole group of people got together and they agreed on something. <laughs> so um, that, that's my take on it. But yeah, that, that's very interesting because that breaks up um, the image that we have on on uh, the U.S. administration. And which is your hypothesis on how could you prevent uh, at least big chunks of the administration of some executive agencies from uh, being trapped in the increasing polarization we see in, in politics, as you say, at the level of speeches in the in the Congress or in the daily. Uh, workings of of uh, elected uh, politicians. I, I think it's a tricky thing um, because there's a need to balance uh, responsiveness to the public, in which case a, a, any administration needs to be sensitive to uh, their constituents. Um, and, and that can, but at the same time, that can lead to pandering and the boiling down of the issues to really overly simplified situations, which then allows for this sort of polarization and, and, and fighting. And so you need to balance being responsive to constituents and including constituents and, and debating with constituents, but at the same time, uh, be able be able to take a step back and recognize when, when that sort of debate is not helpful. And where that line is, is something that scholars have been studying for years. Um, I will say that in, in my experience, at least working in government right now, 
even the most politicized agencies are only politicized in certain respects, but these are very, very large agencies. So you might have a group of people who are at the top who are very politicized in the way that we would traditionally think, but the rest of the thousands of employees who are in that agency uh, just go about their jobs and are, are truly trying to make public policy as, as best they can to, to really improve good governance. Having having said that, one of the things that emerged from the U.S. administration, at least from from outside, was the the this idea of Donald Trump that the administration uh, in the U.S. has an entrenched interest, has a deep state, and um, there was this debate that uh, okay, why shouldn't Trump, because he's the representative, uh, represents millions of voters. Why shouldn't he be able to fire uh, Fauci, for example, uh, or or some other high-rank uh, official and some national health uh, agency for contradicting him? Uh, why should, the, for example, the Congress uh, try to protect the directors of these various parts of the of the administration um, simply because uh, we don't like maybe Trump? <laughs> Uh, and 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 I don't know. That's uh, from from the outside. It, this is kind of a kind of eternal debate and kind of re-edition of uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, uh, kind of father of the spoil system in the U.S. in the 1830s, with his idea of the government of the common man. Now it would be the common person. Well, maybe the common man for Trump anyway. But uh, why this problem has not been increasing? Is is it is it uh, false? This accusation from Republicans, from Trump, is particularly that the uh, agencies, maybe as you say, they are only slightly biased, but they are biased towards towards the left. Yeah. So I think that this is a perpetual problem. Um, Trump brought it to the forefront, right? Like it was part of his message to his constituents in a way that other presidents haven't chosen to raise this issue to as high of a profile, but every president has had to deal with the fact that um, they might want to fire someone who is protected and cannot be fired, or they've gone ahead and fired someone that it's a little bit questionable whether they had the power to do so. Um, and that's been both on, on the Republican side, on the conservative side, and also on the, on the Democratic side, the liberal side. Um, what my research on agent on independent agencies and and the the literature on this more generally has said is that when congress is deciding how to how to insulate an agency from this sort of these big political swings like if we go from say president trump to someone like bernie sanders um there is inevitably going to be these big policy swings that come with a new president and and to a certain extent with Congress too, when when there's a wave of new people coming into Congress, they have different ideas. They want to pass new legislation, um, but what we have found is that both Congress and the president will come to an agreement and credibly commit to tie their hands to prevent future leaders from exerting their political influence over certain agencies um, because that's what's in the best interest of the country. So we tend to see this occur 
with really highly complicated policy areas. For example, in the United States, economic policy, most of the agencies, the leaders of those agencies are not, they're not able to be, I mean, they're, the president and Congress can't remove them. Once you're appointed, you can serve for seven, 14 years. And unless you just fail to show up with to your job or you're grossly incompetent, then you cannot be removed from office. And the idea behind that is we don't want our economic policy tinkered with for political reasons. I mean, inevitably there's politics and everything, but we want to insulate that for a little bit. And with with um, the, one of the debates in the United States right now is what to do with healthcare agencies. Um, and and that's, a, that's a pretty difficult one because many of the healthcare agencies in the United States, well, healthcare in the United States is just incredibly complicated to begin with, but many of the healthcare agencies deal directly with constituents and others. Uh, are highly scientific and are like Dr. Fauci, really driving important policy standards when it comes to infectious disease. So how do we eliminate, like how do we protect the scientific aspect from political tinkering, but still maintain that connection to constituents who rely on uh, these same agencies to get healthcare benefits and uh, support if um, they need financial support in order if they go to the hospital or something like that. So it's a very tricky balance. Yeah, you you are pointing out the, the issue of uh, politicization and firing uh, civil servants. But there is also the uh, civil servants that remove themselves. So uh, the politicization of the pandemic drove basically many career government scientists out of the national health agencies. Uh, they resigned about, over their frustration with the Trump administration because of his uh, disregard for, for scientific expertise. Have these people come back? We know that the Biden administration have been able to recruit very... Uh, a promising and, and highly reputed scientist like you, but but um, do we know something about people? Are, are people coming back to the to, to the with the, to the Biden administration, or in some way there is a, a loss of reputation of working for the private uh, public sector? Because this is what we see in many European countries: the inability of uh, public agencies to attract young people. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, you ask a, a class of uh, I mean, highly motivated um, um, students in, at the university who wanted to make a difference in the world, almost everyone invariably uh, chose some public sector type of job, either in politics or in the administration and so on. But nowadays, no one, they want to go to NGOs to the, or they want to even to go to the uh, high tech companies. They think they might make a difference in a high tech company. Uh, actually, when government is more important now than it was 20 or 30 years ago, because it managed more a larger part of the economy and, and regulates the, the other half. So, um, yeah, I would like to ask you about that in the in the U.S. at the other side of the Atlantic. I I think we have that we have that same problem in in, in the U.S. Although I I don't know a hundred percent. I don't have the statistics in terms of of how many people have come back and and what government looks like now. Um, I think that there are a couple of of factors that. Certainly, there was in particular agencies like health agencies in our state department, which does foreign affairs during the Trump administration, there was also a sort of mass exodus, uh, lots of turn turnover. Um, and but 
I think you're right. People still, people have a desire and a need to work in, in public affairs in some capacity. Uh, and then it's just kind of how to, how they figure out where, what's, where's the best fit for them. Um, I think the Biden administration for a, a group of like-minded individuals are more like, like though that same group are likely to come back into government. Um, and, and in some ways that's the same whenever there's a change in party at in um, the presidency. Uh, inevitably, uh, that president will talk to a particular group of individuals and, and those people may or may not uh, decide to join public service. I think uh, what we see in Congress is it's still highly competitive to to get to work as say a staffer or on a committee or something like that uh, but there is a pretty high burnout factor and it's it's well known that it's a pretty toxic environment and that has that has been a perpetual problem in congress uh, in federal agencies it is it is more there's not like a common thread in terms of toxicity or um, good or bad places to work. It is agency by agency, but a consistent theme both across the legislative and the executive branch in the United States is just the pay. Um, and so when it comes down to dollars and cents, uh, if someone, and it's not a small difference, it's a very large difference. So if you could do the same work and get paid twice as much, for working for a private company, uh, I mean, that twice as much is a lot. It's not an additional $5,000, right? Um, and so so there's been lots of discussion about how to um, how to make federal service more attractive in that way. And, and President Biden has um, been trying to raise the, the, the pay scale across the federal government to make it more attractive to both recruit and to retain uh, the people who work in government. Which is a tricky thing to do, because you know that there are many experiments pointing out that it's not very clear which is uh, which the effects of salary increases are in terms of both more or less motivation or attracting the right type of people or actually you only attract carrierists and not people who really uh, want to uh, uh, serve uh, serve the public. Um, continuing with this idea of, that you have already mentioned before in your previous research on uh, on uh, the control uh, oversight of the of the bureaucracy. I mean, who controls the the bureaucracy? According to the New York Times, the the control of the bureaucracy is a comedy that invites a fresh national tragedy, as you. As, as as you know, but together with Joshua Clinton and David Lewis at Vanderbilt University, you you try to answer this question that has been uh, for for long time has been uh, preoccupying uh, researches. Is does the president or the Congress have more influence over policymaking by uh, the bureaucracy in the U.S.? So in the U.S. Uh the bureaucracy is solidly attached to the presidency. So hierarchically, you start from the president, everything flows from there. So on a daily basis, uh, both uh, surveys have suggested over the course of decades, as well as uh, both anecdotal evidence and qualitative evidence suggests that on a daily basis, agencies probably are a little bit more sensitive to the president's needs. They just... There are good reasons for that. Most agencies are led by people who can be hired or fired by the president. Um, 
Congress doesn't have that authority. However, at the same time in the United States, Congress is the one who ultimately funds the agencies. So there are um, there is pressure across the executive branch to demonstrate a, a certain level of productiveness to Congress so that they are more likely to give you more funds. And so many agencies uh, think about that. So the incentive structure there is to respond to Congress in a very specific way, knowing that Congress will want to have very tangible things that they can point to their constituents and say, this is what this agency is doing. And so agencies 100% are responsive to Congress in that way. Now, what some of my work has suggested is that uh, when you think of the president and Congress as, as sort of one thing, right? Like is, is an agency responsive to Congress or the president? That's one consideration. But in the United States, what happens is that uh, oversight and political control are divided amongst many committees within our legislature. And as the power to direct an agency gets diffused across multiple different committees who all want different things from the agency, Congress ultimately loses a little bit of its authority because now instead of it just being one legislature against one president, it's one president against maybe four or five different committees with four or five different subcommittees with hundreds of legislators attached to them who are all pulling the agency in a different way. And so if the agency has to pick something to follow, it's much easier to hear the president's message. So happens with the Congress, like with the European Union in foreign policy, that there is, uh, like in the, the US, there is no telephone you can, it's not very clear which is the telephone you have to ring uh, to talk yeah, to. That's so, a very good analogy. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, which, I don't know if this is too much, which would be your proposal for change, but I would like to know a little bit your thoughts on the comparison with the, with the other type of uh, administrative control, the one that we have in Westminster democracies or parliamentary democracies. I mean, um, I think it's kind of a myth but uh, a lot of people say that, well, the control is easier because here we only have the executive. The executive emerges from the parliament, like in the, the UK, that would be kind of an electoral dictatorship. So the prime minister, who enjoys a large majority or in principle, <laughs> traditional large majority in the in the in the house, uh, then they they decide on the on the on on the bureaucracy and that. Uh, one of the good side effects would be that you have a relatively low administrative burden. So you don't need uh, to write down very clear instructions to, to the bureaucrats because the boss is the one, let's say, writing the instructions. So the, the instructions to the bureaucrats would be the, the uh, minimal, most efficient uh, ones. On the contrary, in the US, the Congress is writing the instructions, but the executive is overseeing and controlling the de facto the, the bureaucracy. And then there is this excess of um, uh, administrative procedures, and this would uh, have led to the this relatively high on red tape administrative procedures act that you have in the US. To me, always surprised me because I, I remember that many 
southern uh, European countries uh, and Latin American countries, in particular the case of Spain, they literally copy the Administrative Procedures Act that is meant to, to be a kind of a monster uh, um, son of the separation of powers in the US and actually it was copied by dictator Franco in the case of Spain. So the most dictatorial authoritarian executive ended up reproducing the same. So for me, that doesn't seem to me clearly that could be a, a problem of the uh, system of separation of powers when it comes to control of of um, of bureaucracy. But I would like to know your your view on this. Well, when when you were asking this question, what is interesting is when I was thinking about what the the U.S. system would look like if it was a sort of Westminster system like you just described. I thought, well, okay, what are the agencies that are traditionally, um, you know, when, when do we hear about problems? And it turns out that those are the agencies that tend to be the most politicized, that do change very often with the with the with the political tides. So, our Environmental Protection Agency, uh, when you have a conservative president, often Reagan, yeah, or there, there is a, a different <laughs> Trump, there, yeah. there is a different type of leadership in that agency and a different type of focus on that agency than there is when, say, there's a Democratic president like President Obama. Um, and so what is interesting is in is that, that that same swing, those same swings, those same changes in policy would still occur under a Westminster system. It would just be that the only difference is that the, the swings are coming from the legislature. Uh, but uh, more broadly, thinking about the effects of policy of of political change on on administrative agencies, I feel actually pretty comfortable with the way that the American separation of power system is set up and the way that administrators operate within that system. Um, things like the Administrative Procedures Act, ironically, were initially passed to facilitate more interaction with constituents. Um, and as you point out, they are incredibly burdensome and they are really only facilitating interaction with a very specific type of constituent. And those are people who have a lot of money and talent and are able to hire law firms to represent their interests. Um, and so I think that there are things that could be done to reduce the administrative burden, to uh, encourage more agencies and administrators to interact with constituents. Um, and, and perhaps the Westminster system does that because things are more attached to the legislature, which does seem to have a feel for more connection to uh, the, the average citizen. But um, at the same time, when you do that, you do lose a little bit of the independence and insulation that often fosters a specific type of expertise that we need when when we're developing public policy. That's a very good point, Jennifer. Uh, I no doubt think that there is a lot of connection between the bureaucrats and the regulated uh, uh, agents in a, in a society and uh, in parliamentary systems. And I can think that a good measure, uh, at least in some European countries, is to look at the number of uh, high civil servants who sit in the board of directors of large companies uh, in the stock market. Uh, companies uh, whose future, whose uh, <laughs> 
pues, uh, yeah, prospects depend a lot on government regulation. And by chance, they do not only have politicians, which is normally the case, but they have in many countries a, a, a large numbers of civil servants. So in some way, the connections between civil uh, with civil servants seem to be more important for businesses than connections with a particular political party. It makes sense. I mean, civil servants might be there for life. Uh, they enjoy this kind of... Uh, uh, tenures, absolute tenures in in some of these on these countries. Um, this leads me to the issue of the uh, independence of the of the civil uh, of the agencies. You you have been uh, studying uh, the the independence of agencies, but um, and trying to measure that and providing a novel measure of of independence. And and I would like you to. Uh, explain our listeners how can we know that an agency is independent from from government for all from politicians in in general well we can never know for certain that's number one but what my research really stresses and what i stress when i am say advising legislators who are considering creating a new agency or thinking about how to uh, alter the organization of existing agencies is that there are so many different ways that agencies can be designed. So my, my I, uh, with David Lewis, I, I have cataloged over 67 different features, different design features across the federal government. So some agencies will have one of these design features, but not another. And we can group those design features into categories that either facilitate a little more interaction with the president or a little less interaction with the president, a little more interaction with Congress or a little bit less interaction with Congress. And so Ultimately, what ends up happening is that this is a strategic decision that politicians have to make. How insulated do we want an agency to be and what does that mean? Do we want the agency to have um, the ability to raise its own funds, which then sort of removes it from, from congressional control? Do we want to protect the leaders from being able to be fired by the president? Um, that's, that's something that would remove an agency from pr the presidential control. And every agency looks different. And, and there is a conscious decision by politicians when they're designing the agencies. Now, inevitably, we, it is a product of compromise. So there's never going to be a purely independent agency and there's never going to be a, a purely political agency. Um, it, it, it's, it's all uh, shades of gray, shall we say. Um, and one thing that my research uh, has not done up to this point, although will it is something I'm currently working on, is then thinking about, well, given how uh, an agency operates within both its statutory framework in terms of how responsive it is to the president and how responsive it is to Congress, there's also a third branch in the federal government in the United States, and that's the court system. And so in some preliminary research, what my co-author and I find is that Congress actually thinks about this when they're constructing the ability of the courts to um, review agency policy. So often, if a if, if politicians insulate an agency from political control, they often grant the courts a lot of, over, of authority to oversee the public policy and review the public policy of that agency. So um, it's a really complicated but really interesting story. And um, it's, it's just, it's, 
really fun to think about all the different ways that agencies can be structured to, to make them more or less responsive to various actors. So ultimately, the politicization of bureaucracy ends up with the judicialization of, of, of politics. Yes. I think that's a problem that we see in, in many in many democracies. And actually, in many cases, uh, members of the Congress are happy to know that it's going to be the judges who take the decisions that might be, uh, um, I mean, the, the, they can blame the responsibility to the judges for, for those controversial uh, decisions, at least in, for example, issues of abortion and so on, the conservatives in Europe have relied quite a lot on the on the constitutional courts or, or the what we call constitutional court and you call uh, a supreme supreme court. I would not like uh, to finish without talking about something very particular of the public administration, down to earth, down to the uh, street level bureaucrat, uh, because you have also been doing research on that, and in particular on a very important part of the administration, which is uh, teachers. And you have been uh, looking at the turnover of, of, uh, of teachers and, and, and so on. And I think that's, that's very important. And one, one thing that, that uh, surprised me, first of all, is like the annual rates of employee turnover in general for federal employees in the US seems to be between 13 and 14 percent. And 16% for school public teachers. Um, is that a lot? Is it too little? Uh, how would you would compare that? I mean, with people in the private sector, or which, which kind of which kind of lessons can we learn from this uh, from this uh, um, uh, turnover? Um, so, and I think that the teacher turnover might even be higher uh, post COVID because um, there it, it was there was an incredible amount of stress on our public school teachers during COVID and still afterwards. Like currently, as students are getting back on track and and overcoming the learning gaps that inevitably occurred during a really you know during a pandemic, um, I think that. The important comparison is to compare public servants more generally, uh, because the 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 pressures on on them are are slightly different than those in the private sector, both in terms of pay, which we've discussed, uh, in terms of things like whether someone can be hired or or can be fired or promoted, and what and how restrictive the the human resource policies are with respect to that. Um, what we what we find is that turnover tends to occur in many ways for for non pecuniary or non financial reasons. So in my my opening example of COVID and and teacher turnover probably being high right now is a perfect example. Um, it's just not healthy or worth it to continue in, in public service if your work environment is not very good or you are overburdened or you feel like you as a, as a public servant are constantly striving to be better and to, to make your organization better, but you are surrounded by people who don't seem to be putting in the same amount of effort. And, and we all experience that. Um, but those those things, the distribution of, of those stresses and those um, frustrations really do depend on how long you stay in 
in an agency. And so what we would really encourage those who study street level bureaucrats to, to think about is what are the factors that make someone happy in their job and not? And a lot of the literature from public administration tends to focus on this thought that uh, public servants are motivated by a commitment to public service. And that is certainly true. But many people in the private sector, as you pointed out earlier, are also motivated by public uh, service. They've just made a different decision for either financial or other reasons. And so moving beyond that and really thinking about the environment in which public servants work is incredibly important. Uh, you're pointing out something that uh, is very, uh, I think is very important at both sides of the Atlantic, I think, or in the whole world, which is this idea, this prevailing idea that the new teachers should have fixed salaries, but relatively low, because uh, then they, they do, do, we make a low initial investment in the profession, and then uh, the, the, when when they get older, they get, their, uh, get get higher salaries. This idea of deferred compensation, so we don't pay them much now, but we, they will have better payment and better pensions than in the private uh, sector. But this leads, as as you also have been doing research, to this idea of sink or swim mentality, which new teachers very very with very low pay they are uh, thrown into isol isolated classrooms with very little very little support and in that sense uh, turnover uh, kicks in maybe and um, is the turnover um, affecting more teachers with certain ethnic backgrounds uh, hispanics uh, blacks and so on because uh, representative bureaucracy seems to be also an increasing uh, field of research in, in public administration, and some research shows that actually a more representative bureaucracy leads to better outcomes for the represented groups, such as higher test scores for girls with a female uh, teacher, higher likelihood that Black students are proposed for gifted programs when taught by Black teachers, or better treatment of minority citizens by police officers when having more police officers from the, those ethnic minorities. But other studies actually indicate the, the opposite, such an increase in racial profiling in the police divisions with more minority officers. What do you make uh, of this um, of, of this research on, on representative bureaucracy and the importance of having a representative bureaucracy, in particular in the teaching profession, which is your expertise? Um, well, obviously, re representative bureaucracy is incredibly important, and and in in a educational setting in particular, because it is it has been well documented that um, often we subconsciously or consciously need to see someone like us in order to believe that we can do something. So, I am a woman. If I am taught by a super intelligent mathematic wizard, I see a woman doing incredibly smart math and that that might um, motivate me in a different way than if I saw um, someone who didn't really look like me doing that same thing. So from, from that perspective, from a mentoring perspective and an example pr perspective, I think it is, it is absolutely important that we have a representative bureaucracy. We also know from studies that that we all have different backgrounds and we bring our backgrounds and experiences in ways that we don't even really are, may not be conscious of to our daily work and the way that we interact with others 
is informed by our previous experiences. And so in that way, it's also very important uh, to have a representative bureaucracy. Now, uh, going to the negative examples, it is more complicated than that because one has to look at the statistics that you that you've cited and said okay well what's going on in that organization is that just a really toxic culture in general and so this isn't a question of representative bureaucracy this is a question of a really toxic workplace that is attracting people of a certain type and or maintaining a people of a certain type and so um i think thinking about socioeconomic uh, status and demographics is incredibly important, but it is thinking about socioeconomics and demographics in in context of the organizations in which one works. Thank you, thank you, Jennifer, for your um, for your thoughts on this and for a fantastic conversation. It has been a pleasure talking to you on this, and hope we have the opportunity to discuss further uh, once. I don't know, we are, we're going to have a new president, but apparently Biden is going to announce maybe today he's going to... Uh, he, he did this morning, he officially. Did already. Uh, officially did. this morning. <laughs> Breaking uh, news. Breaking news. <laughs> Breaking news that uh, uh, reached this side of the Atlantic. Um, so, well, uh, if that means that you're going to stay at uh, an executive agency trying to... Um, drive or trying to make sense a little bit of the complex uh, American bureaucracy that would have been worthwhile. Thank you very much, uh, Jennifer. It has been a pleasure and, and uh, yeah, great to have you there at this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.